You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week in the OBS Hall of Fame, we dive into the career and legacy of the greatest dramatic soprano born in 20th century Sweden, whose name doesn't rhyme with Schmirgit Hilsen. Plus, in the two-minute trail, a different Swedish soprano is inducted into a German Hall of Fame that is somehow less exclusive than that of the OBS HOF. That was a lot of letters. Hey, look, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Get the whole thing. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. And of course, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Get your voice heard operaboxscore at gmail.com you're going to get the obs merch beer coasters lapel pins all that good stuff just for sharing your own hot take got a great crew tonight matt cummings there you are here i am and here you are and here we all are together we are all here Except Oliver. Except Oliver, but he's having a ball. We'll get to Oliver's pilgrimage in a second. Weston Williams, great to be in the same oral space as you. Well, yeah, same oral space, but same time uh, zone. If those of you who have been who are longtime fans of the show and have gotten used to a certain acoustic, might have noticed the past couple of shows and the the echoes in my closet sound a little different. That's because I am now moved. To another part of the city overlooking the lake. And let me tell you, folks, I was looking out today. It was gray and stormy. And I put on a little bit of Peter Grimes, one of those sea interludes. And man, it hit just right. You know, there's something about it. You know, the cold bleakness of Lake Michigan really gets to you sometimes. Got a great idea there, Weston. Ashley Hardgrave, great to be in the same space as you as well. I know because we haven't been in such a long time. Yeah. It has been a you've been a what you've been a little working girl. It's been a summer of singing in Chi Town, that is for sure. And now I get a lovely break just in time to learn about all of the drugs in professional sports. So listen. <laughs> Between Britney Griner's ridiculous imprisonment for cannabis oil, hashtag mm-hmm. free Britney 2.0, yeah. to our other bestie Karen Rogers' revelation of an ayahuasca trip that's helped him for his game, we're in an incredibly different spot with drugs than we were in that era of HGH yes. and steroids. <laughs> I mean, I am all we're about talking positive about positive now. It's 2022. We are. Well, <laughs> It's legal in Illinois. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I mean, I'm all about talking about feelings, but I did not have discuss Aaron Rodgers tripping balls on my 22 bingo card. So uh, <laughs> it's been uh, it's been quite a week. This I, this is what I don't get. So I, I leave the show for one week and I go on vacation with my family to Michigan. The England women's national team wins Euro 2020. Bill Russell of the Celtics dies and Lou Whitaker of the Detroit Tigers jersey is retired. All these things happened in essentially the space of 10 days. Yeah. I think yeah. the universe is telling you to go on vacation more often. You probably too right. hard, George. Well, in fairness, hard. you in fairness, the British government did collapse while you were over there, so just be careful Ooh. about your vacations in the future. I've got that magic touch. Let's talk <laughs> some opera. And now Ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. While Oliver is at Santa Fe preparing his zitz bones for the opera goers marathon, Tristan und Isolde, well, we here at the OBS wanted to take a look at one of the great exponents of that opera, whose greatness is undeniable, but whose legacy isn't quite as well known as it should be. So in the years between the reigns of Kirsten Flagstad and Birgit Nilsson, uh, as the undisputed queens of Wagner, there was another singer who made quite an impression tackling opera's most formidable ladies, 
With her expansive vocalism, her dramatic intensity, and her impeccable musicianship. And if you have been following along through this episode with bated breath, picking up our little breadcrumb clues along the way, (laughs) you might have figured out that we are talking about the Swedish-born, Hungarian-American soprano, Astrid Varnai. Uh, mm. who was one of the leading dramatic sopranos of her generation uh, and was born into a family of opera singers. Her mother was a coloratura soprano. Her father was a spinto tenor. Um, her oh. parents were the founders of the opera comique in uh, Oslo, or as it was then known, Christiania. Um, and they performed there along with Flogstad. Uh, they the family moved around looking for opportunity. Ended up in New York, so she actually mostly grew up in America. Um, but Astrid Varney is a wonderful, wonderful singer, and you might know her name, but she was almost an exact contemporary of Birgit Nilsson, and you definitely know her name. And really, yes. what we're saying is you should know both of their names, and you should be yeah. familiar with mm-hmm. both of their works because they offer something really, really completely different from one another, but like so complementary, uh, mm. and, and mm-hmm. particularly in terms of this 19th century German dramatic soprano repertoire where they um, just like kind of blew a lot of their competition out of the water in terms of their ability to to <laughs> breathe new life into I it. Mean, and ju- to, just from yeah. sheer volume, they were able to blow them out of the water. <laughs> you really, you want them as lifeguards. You know, you, you don't need the whistle when you have the voice of a Varney or Nielsen. You're, you're good to go. I mean, who needs the lighthouse when you've got bullhorns like <laughs> Swedish, American, Hungarian, Moldovan, Romanian? How many other countries can we name Sopranos? There, there's this, um, this little anecdote that like comes up all the time when people talk about like how all these great Norwegian uh, dramatic singers about how they have lots of practice yelling at each other across open expanses. <laughs> and like, that's probably not true, but I like to think that there's something to it. Yeah. Um, but so Astrid Varney, born into this musical family, um, by the age of 22, she was coaching with Hermann Weigert, who was a, a pianist and coach conductor, that she met through Flagstad. He later would become her husband. She, at the age of 22, already had like 15 huge dramatic soprano roles on her resume that she had coached and were ready Crazy. to prepare. I don't understand how that's physically possible. No, 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 no. And you're saying, you're saying, Matt, everyone lies on their resume. People, people are listing roles that they have the score to, like on their bookshelf next to their piano. And they're like, I could sing that someday. I'll put it as role study. Like I've listened to a couple recordings. Um, so Varney's debut is one of those stories that you listen to it and you're, you just like feel your jaw dropping lower and lower and lower towards the floor. Um, so on a cold night in December, 1941, (laughs) which which day in December, 1941, Matt, it's December 6th. As a matter of fact, we'll come back to that. Um, (laughs) Lotte Lehmann is out with a cold. She's supposed to be singing Sieglinde at the Metropolitan Opera with Lauritz Melchior uh, as as Siegmund with um, Helen Trebell, who we now know has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, as Brunhilde, <laughs> Eric Leinsdorf is conducting. She has a cold. She can't go on. There are a number of others, understudies they try to contact to jump in, and they get all the way down on the list to the fifth of five of those understudies, Astrid Varney, 23 years old. Um and she goes in, yeah. makes her professional opera debut at the Met with no rehearsal, singing Sieglinde. Um, oh my dead. God! You want to know I'm how dead. it went? Let's let's listen to a clip. She'll show you how it went. So that's like my 50 favorite seconds of the five hours of opera that is Divakura, the the um, redemption through love mo- motif where um, 
where where Sieglinde finds out that she is pregnant with Siegfried and just is so excited. And, and let me let me say let me take advantage of the fact that we're no longer on the Dallas Opera Network here and say holy shit. <laughs> Like, like, how how old was she when she did this? This was uh, forty one, right? She's twenty three. She's twenty three. Insane. She's so, not been rehearsing. She just did and it. Guess what? Guess what? That's only part. That's only Act One. So on Act Two, it's six <laughs> days later. This time, Helen Trebell is sick. Guess who they call to jump in and sing the role yeah, of Brunhilde yeah, yeah, at age twenty three? A week later. That's no, right. It's Astrid Varney. Now, here's the thing, right? Like, in 1941, acting in opera hadn't been invented yet. So, you know, I, I, under, I understand how we might think that this is perhaps not as, as exciting as it is. But, but the sports metaphor is this, is that this is essentially someone in their rookie year coming off of the bench, having been watching practice to, like, get their hands behind center or to be, you know, playing point guard or forward or whatever it is you know, in the major leagues. This is just incredible. It's like watching Rookie of the Year, where like a middle yeah. schooler with a shoulder injury is yeah, able yeah. <laughs> to become MVP. This is this is the third string pitcher in Field of Dreams coming and starting for the Cubs tomorrow. That's what this is. And that was noted on at the time, even by um, her her longtime friend and compatriot, Birgit Nilsson, who noted in her autobiography that at the time that Varney was making these debuts, she was still working on her family's farm pulling up turnips. <laughs> um, and what what could easily go un, unremarked here, but it won't because it's us, um, is that these two roles require extremely different things of oh, the singer. Absolutely. And so to be able to sing both of them, not only like at age 23, not only within a week of each other, but at all, like is is a feat that not many other singers can match, can say that can can say that they have done. Sieglinda is is a is a small it it requires like less volume, but it needs a lot of line and it needs you to have a huge amount of sound in your upper register. Yeah. And and that that register can just like bloom and expand because you just have to pour these great fountains of sound out to fill the whole room. And you need a lot of flexibility in your vocalism to be able to do that mixture of like low declamatory stuff when you're at home being um, browbeaten by hunding and this lyrical singing when you're like at the heights of ecstasy. Um, And she gets some of the best music in the opera. Mm. And then Brunhilde is a much more declamatory role. I mean, famously, it's among the most difficult roles in the entire right. operatic repertoire, if not the most difficult role. Uh, it it enters on the hoyotohos that are that like go all the way up to the very top of the staff, um, and it's quite an <laughs> undertaking even to get through that. And then you still have to sing for three and a half more hours. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and one of the one of those long stretches and and. One of those long stretches at toward the end of Act Two, when Brunhilde appears to Sigmund and and to to tell him about his destiny, um, listen to just how differently she's able to marshal her vocal resources and enable in order to make um, the the feeling of this music come alive, the urgency of this music come mm. alive. It's just a totally different affect, and it sounds like it could be a different singer, but it's not. <laughs> Spirit, the promise is bigger than mine. The promise is bigger than mine. 
and that that recording also featured a little a couple of clips of Ramon Vinay as Sigmund. The vocal acting is so precise. Like she's able to like because I, I feel like most sopranos, even really, really good dramatic sopranos who who do these roles are just kind of sometimes just hanging on for dear life just to just to get the notes out right because honestly just getting through the role is an accomplishment that, in and of it itself. is <laughs> like i mean i like yeah. it's astounding if you can even get the notes out but to do that and have a distinct character in your voice is really something extraordinary and like george mentioned earlier this was before they had invented acting in, in Wagner <laughs> yeah, too. And- well and i also you know in thinking you you mentioned the idea of vocal acting she's the thing that blows my mind about all of this is, well, there's a few things. I'll touch on this and then I'll touch on some others later. But when you think about that idea of vocal acting, so many people, especially Wagnerians, because they're working so hard, will find these like glottal stops and bits and places mm-hmm. where they like slap their chords together to like yeah, emphasize yeah. emotion. The Bayreuth not- bark, baby. Exactly. She's not doing that. You know, it's you feel the emotion, you see the through line of what she's trying to tell you, but she's doing it without any of those like potentially harmful and frankly, they sound harmful and painful acrobatics. And this was something that was really remarked on at the time was uh, just how musically intelligent she was, how adept her phrasing was, how she was able to shade these roles with a huge palette of vocal colors. Um, And interesting, this is around the same time that on the Italian and French side of the repertoire, uh, Maria Callas was starting to do something really similar to the bel canto repertoire right, right. Uh, to really make it so that it was more than just pretty bird songs. Uh, I think that <laughs> I think that she made her operatic debut in like 1949. So we're really within a decade of each other. They yeah. like they they sing very differently. They're completely different singers. But I think there's a really interesting right. parallel track there when you're looking at like the development of opera on the mid 20th century and Varna was undeniably on the vanguard of like bringing character into the back into the art form and introducing it in the way that we expect today from our singers yeah Um, it just wasn't it that was not a requirement audiences did not demand that in the early 20th century in the same way that they do today especially for wagner because i feel like at the turn of the century uh what you see in a lot of analysis of wagner is really about like the harmony of course uh the poetry and uh, there's very much a sense the singer's job is to just put it forward you know as written and let it sort of like you know it really isn't about the singers um uh, I mean, the characters are important, but there was very much because uh, you do see a little bit of a, of a brief renaissance in opera acting uh, in like the 20s and 30s. But it's not really this repertoire. Again, part of that is simply because, you know, you you're just hanging out for dear life with the notes. But to see this in this context, to have like a, a new level of what. Wagner was putting into his works and bringing it out. I think that's a big uh, difference with uh, Callas too, is because, you know, the bel canto is never going to be as meaty dramatically as Wagner. And Callas Mm. was able to wring so much stuff out of that. But there's so much more to wring out of Wagner and a lot of the uh, post-Wagnerian composers that she was known for uh, singing. Uh, It it really is. uh, It is a feat and a half to uh, really approach that. And it helps when you've got a voice like this to begin with. I mean, yes. <laughs> it is ri- it is rich and dark, and it has this real mezzo-soprano fullness in the middle register and real technical security all the way down into the basement. And when she was, especially when she was a young, up-and-coming singer, it opened up into this gleaming and like seemingly limitless pool of sound in her upper register. Um, like, the way that it just blooms is very different than the approach to high notes from like, I mean, I, I'll bring Nilsson up again, not because I think that there's a comparison or that one of them is any better than the other, but just that that is probably the voice that most of our listeners are familiar singing right. this repertoire like that. And it's just a completely different approach to that high note singing where Nilsson is like a laser that hits you right in the middle of the forehead and like almost drills through your skull because the force of the her voice is so much. Uh, and... And Varney's voice is much more like a wave that envelops you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great way to describe it. And and if there's one role that really I think typifies what she was able to do in her youth, I, it's Electra, um, because mm. this is a role that has so many hairpin turns of like high to low, of soft and delicate and <laughs> and demented to talk about an accomplishment just to get the notes yeah. out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just the intensity and like literal vocal range as well as dramatic range, and just the relentless vocalism that you need to make it through the one hundred and whatever minutes of that show um let's listen to a clip of her singing electra's opening monologue She first heard this, this role on for size uh, in a concert version with the New York Philharmonic. Her uh, lecture was described as a ferocious beauty. Her hatred is like charged lightning. Her relentlessness, her relentless advance into vengeance shapes phrases into daggers. She is, in short, as immense as the text and score. And I think that really gets to something about what makes her such a special singer is just you really can hear that just by listening to her. You do not need to see it. Um, and the... She was not limited in terms of the colors that she could that, that that she could conjure up with her voice. You know, you just heard like a high C that you would be able to hear from across Manhattan. Mm. Uh, but when she was asked <laughs> to sing things like Elsa in Lohengrin, for instance, um, there's a real girlish character to her singing and like a delicacy now that for comes totally through. Something totally different. <laughs> um, let's listen to a clip of that from from the, her second act aria, the Oiklüftchen. Yeah, to me, it's really one thing to sing all these characters, and it's a very different to have them all sound different and distinct from one another. I mean, it, it, it almost does a disservice to say that it's just like 
good musicianship. Like she's digging into the text, and you the, know, and what she's able to do with her phrasing and yeah. like what I think is so interesting about this German music is like it's much less symmetrical than the Italian music, where the mm-hmm. phrase lengths yeah. are a lot more predictable, and they like the way that they arch is in a way that like intuitively makes sense to those of us who have grown up with like some sense of Western music in this kind of German music. Like the phrase lengths change from just a couple words that you spit out here and there to like one note that you have to hold for 15 seconds while the orchestra changes colors underneath you. And to be, and Varna did sing a lot of Italian music as well. I'm not going to, we're not going to listen to any of it today because I don't think it shows her like at her absolute best in the way that the German repertoire does, but just like the command of being able to shape the shape her air, like even throughout those sustained pitches is like very special. Uh, and and yeah. it's really what sets her apart. Uh, I, I I always compare like listening to Wagner or Strauss to uh, almost like Monte Verdi in a way because of that precision of how like how like a phrase can become so important that it will break all the rules to make it make dramatic uh, sense, you know, whereas in Italian o- opera of the same sort of period, you tend to have it be the other way around. Where sometimes you have, it's like, just the about the musical vibe structure. in Italian opera. A lot of <laughs> times, actually, it's, it's just about yeah. the vibe. You know? And German music is a lot more specific. Yes. You're right. Um, so... Ronnie was a really reliable Met presence for the first decade and a half after her debut there. Um, in the meantime, she made major debuts in Munich and Berlin and Vienna and Paris. She became a mainstay at Bayreuth after Flagstaff recommended her to take over take over for her uh, in 1951. Um, and <laughs> a good reference to have. <laughs> yeah, can you um. Weston, what was Bayreuth like in the 50s? Well, it was a strange <laughs> time for Bayreuth because uh, you uh, obviously this was the the days of uh, Wieland Wagner um, and uh, and company because this was the first time uh, Bayreuth opened after World War II. Right. So you have mm-hmm. um, the pre uh, the pre uh, the pre war Bayreuth was very much, shall we say, Nazi, uh, in that uh, it was very much about presenting um, Wagner as like the pinnacle of German art and therefore all art um, in its most natural um, setting in the way that he the Meister wanted it. I believe there was a quote from like Cosimo when she was still alive, like well after Wagner was uh, Richard was gone. Uh, and uh, and there was like a point where one of the directors came and asked her a question about what what they thought they should do with um, with this, and she said, "How how how would Ricard have done it?" You know, yeah. And this was this was like thirty forty years removed at this mm-hmm. point. Her diaries are like her trying to divine what her husband would have wanted. But there was there's very much a necessity uh, after the the Nazis um, to uh, really try to do your best to reclaim. Uh, Wagner from the Nazis, despite Wagner's, you know, own blatant anti-Semitism, yeah. uh, because he became truly the aesthetic symbol of of Nazism, but he was still this integral part of German culture. So uh, what Wieland did um, and uh, uh, the people he was working with, including Varney, were doing, were trying to remove everything that was that that made um, that made Bayreuth a temple for this old conservative fascist view of fascist German art. Uh, and that included, you know, getting rid of the naturalistic scenery, um, uh, changing the tempos drastically. Um, I think the average speed of Parsifal went from, you know, like they like managed to cut like 40 minutes off of it, you know, in this <laughs> just, time period. Just, just because they're like, a clip. yeah, exactly. Well, and all good things, honestly. And this was yeah. sort of the birth of Reggie Theater, right? Um, uh, at this time period. <laughs> and it and was so, also a necessity because there wasn't it a lot was. of money. Yeah. Right. That um, is also true. It, yeah. it really worked to help them out on a bunch of levels. But the reason they could sell it was because uh, this was the time when they were getting, uh, as we said, saving money, getting rid of all this unnecessary fluff. And they were producing these really basic, minimalist, modernist sets. So you have like the Tristan and Isolde that's just like a flat plane and some stairs, you know. Um, and uh, I, uh, there's a, a quote from Wieland Wagner. Um, someone asked him about the lack of scenery 
tree on stage. And he said, why do I need a tree on the stage when I have Astrid Varney? Which I and think is great. That quote made it into every single one of her obituaries. Don't you worry. <laughs> yep. So, but she could she could sell it. That was that was the strength of what she could do. She could take this completely new presentation of Wagner and opera and art in general and sell it. Well, it's good she had that good relationship at at Bayreuth, right? Because from the mid fifties to the mid seventies, she did (laughs) not play. She didn't. Yeah, she um get guess who uh guess who is gonna be an ass again? It's our old friend Rudolph. (laughs) Um, Oh Rudy. Rudy, 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 Rudy. Rudy Yeah, she left the Met after she felt like they weren't giving her a good enough contract, which is probably true, given his track record of um of not giving people good contracts, particularly those who were American uh, trained. Um, so yeah, she she made a big return to the Met in the mid in 1974 as the Kostelnitschka in Yenufa. And you're saying you're you're saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. You said that this is a dramatic <laughs> soprano. What is she doing singing the Kostelnitschka? The line between a dramatic soprano and a mezzo soprano is not as is it's like it's not as stark as you would think, right? Because no, the no. <laughs> the the voices tend to sit a little bit lower than sopranos. If they have a C, they maybe have like one C the entire night. Um, and many of the noted exponents of these roles struggled with the C's. Kirsten Flagstad, uh, possibly the most famous among them, uh, yes. had had Schwarzkopf pinch hit the C's in her Tristan and Isolde recording for her. So the so Scandal. the legend goes. Um, so as Varney was singing this incredibly difficult dramatic soprano rap for over 20 years, and her high register started becoming a little bit constricted, uh, and you know, you can you if you listen to the recordings from the late fifties and early sixties, like you can hear that it takes a little bit more effort to maneuver her way up there. She still gets there, and a lot of the time, she's also solidly in her forties at this point. Right, yeah, she still gets yeah. there, and it like when it, the sound is still honestly pretty good, but um, she had no desire to continue singing that demanding rep that she'd been singing, and but also no desire to retire from the stage. So she did what all the greats do: she became a mezzo. <laughs> so true. which honestly serves her well because she's got that epic acting that epic storytelling ability mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and let's be honest those betsa roles they got a little more meat on them bones. yeah well it's like moving from you know first base where you get a lot of the action to third base where you're you're not getting the ball quite so much <laughs> over like, at the yeah like, i don't want to work that hard so we, you know, we talked about Electra and we talked about Elsa. So um, those are operas that stayed in her repertoire. She just started doing more Ortrudes and started uh, ah. doing more Clytemnestras. So <laughs> Ortrude is actually a role that she was doing even in her even in her heyday. She she famously did it at Bayreuth again, like with Nielsen as Elsa. Um, and wow. that is, it is just yeah. some balls to the wall mm. singing. Let's yeah. listen to a clip of uh, her singing the Entweiter Götter uh, invocation. the 80s she's moving from these dramatic mezzo-soprano roles into the character roles you know she's still doing Mama Lucia in uh, Cavalleria Rusticana her final new role she took in 1995 55 years after she made her debut uh, as the nurse in Boris Godunov and when she asked when she was asked why she was still doing this she said I just love being on stage seeing up close the work of my younger colleagues Mm. Uh, and that kind of graciousness and that love of the art form and a desire 
desire to be a part of it however she can in that moment in time is really special and something that you don't always see in um singers in general and leading ladies in particular (laughs) (laughs) um and it it comes with the kind of fearlessness that was really present in her singing the whole time listen let's listen to a clip of her doing Clytemnestra from the movie version of Electra and just listen to the way that she is using these vocal colors to make a downright ugly sound when it's really called for So much dynamic range in that clip, such a, so many strong choices to like highlight the decay of the House of Atreus mm. and really make the audience uncomfortable. And um, this is a this is a film version too. It's not just a filmed staged version. Um, and there aren't very many opera singers who I think are as successful in close up as Varney right, is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but really, and like maybe Beverly Sills. But yes, yes, you're right. But like she's given face, and it's working. yes she's given face real hard well and it's it's one of those concepts of not leaning on the pretty um Mm -hmm, there's a lot of singers of of this era and frankly of all eras there that like if they make a beautiful sound that's what they do they Mm -hmm. make a beautiful sound and they're the singers that we consider to be extraordinary and that really stick out to us are the ones that are willing to shed that and get rid of the ball gown and yeah. get down and get dirty when when the when the text, when the drama, when the storytelling calls for it. So I love that she's an example of that. And for me, like that that's what opera is all about, right? Because it, it isn't always pretty all the time. I mean, like this might not come as a surprise given the rep rep I'm most famous for talking about <laughs> on the show. Uh, but I think there's something about finding that the the beauty and ugliness, um, mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, you know the violence in um, in you know these shimmering moments that is something that I think opera as an art form can do better than really anything else else out there that I've encountered. And when I see a singer like Varney doing that and and leaning into that for her whole career, that for me is what makes a great, great yeah. opera artist. Mm-hmm. And um, one role where I think she made an, an, another role where she made a great impression is as we started this segment. Isolde, interest on an Isolde. Of course. This was an inescapable role for a dramatic soprano at the time. Um, and while Nilsson may have claimed to the divini- definitive recording uh, in, in the, the minds of the opera going public, there's a lot to appreciate in Varney's version. Um, and I, I kept talking about Nilsson because there is kind of an unavoidable comparison. They shared mm. a lot of rep. 
They're terrific talents. They were born within a month of each other in Sweden. They died within a year of each other. Um, they were good friends. They were there was no like bitter rivalry between them. They stayed friends and colleagues throughout the show, pe- mm. uh, throughout the show, throughout their lives, throughout the show of their <laughs> the lives. The show we call life. <laughs> <laughs> People often confuse them for one another. Uh, and uh, going back to our good friend Vilan Wagner, he talked about the the singers who he had sing as older at this time, and he called Marta Myrtle the tragic as older. Birgit Nilsson, the loving Isolde, and Astrid mm. Barney, the revenge-seeking Isolde. Mm. Um, so with that in mind, let's hear a clip of her singing the narration and curse uh, and just talk about a range of emotions and vocalism in terms of the demands from moment to moment. Like, this is 12 minutes of you you never know what you're going to get because it's going to be completely different from the moment before it, and she delivers. One of the most challenging parts of one of the most challenging roles in all of opera, without woof. any question. Yeah. Just like, woof. Amen. <laughs> she brings that character to life so clearly. Um, and all of that, you know, fire and brimstone that she's raining down on Tristan in the curse does not mean that she had lacked the ability to be delicate and tender. Um, and you hear that especially at that like at the end in the love duet in Act Two, which we're not gonna clip for you tonight, but you should seek out because it's wonderful. Um, but Listen to we're gonna we're gonna we're moving into our end game. We're gonna we're gonna close with you know one of his oldest greatest hits. But can I get some closing mm. thoughts from the panel before we do? Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about listening to these recordings and just sort of the, celebrating this type of singer is looking at technique uh, and and listening for sort of the full and open and relaxed throat. There's especially now in in conservatory trainings and, you know, with with a lot of modern singers, there's this push for people to be like singing into the mask and it's got to be squealo and your sinuses should be vibrating. Her sinuses aren't vibrating. Like this is this is all throat. Mm -hmm. This is all like chords that are are down, a larynx that is low, you know. And so one of the things that I really appreciate about us celebrating this person is Listen to some of the famous sopranos of today and then listen to the recording of someone like Barney side by side. They're singing the same rep, but they sound 
completely different. Now, yeah. I mean, it's a style thing, but this is a style that I tend to prefer. This sort of bigger, larger, more open technique. And there's there's some singers and some teachers out right now that are that are starting to really have this conversation about returning to this style of singing. And so I'm really excited to see to, you know, to celebrate this person today, but also to see what types of singers we can get with that technique in the future. Astrid Varney joins the OBS Hall of Fame. Matt, take us home with a final clip. Yeah, everything from, we got everything in this one from steely force to limpid radiance. And if a few scoops and swoops are the price you pay along the way, so be it. Because <laughs> this is a singer who is not just surviving in this repertoire, who is not just managing to get, to get by, but a singer who has the ability to make choices. And to, ha- to have the ability to make choices and to bring those choices to life when singing like this is honestly a marvel. And to use those talents and those abilities to create the strongest, most fascinating possible portrayals, a Libus Toad like this is what gets you into the Hall of Fame. Sports nugget to tackle before we move on to the two minute drill. Ashley, what's on your mind? You know, this is one for Weston. Um, I'd like oh. to congratulate Weston's beloved Alabama Crimson Tide, who were voted number one in USA Today's coaches poll that is out today. Weston, congratulations. Maybe they'll beat Georgia this year. Ouch. Uh, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. One second. One second. One second. One second. I need to get away from the microphone. Oh, God. Hang on. I, one to, second. I, I one second, this folks. This makes me. Roll time! It makes me so angry when he does that. I, I can't stand it. I'm going to have to move straight on to the two-minute drill. I'm going to leave you in the dust, Weston, while you put your headphones back on. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Opera Theater of St. Louis has announced the creative teams for their inaugural New Works Collective, which aims to turn the power dynamic that traditionally programs operas on its head. Six artists, composers, librettists, and stage directors have been identified to create, workshop, and premiere three new chamber operas in March 2023, said General Director Andrew Jorgensen, quote, we're excited to better serve the voices of our artists and our community. 
Congrats to Nina Stemma, who has been awarded the title of Bayerische Kammerzängerin, the highest musical distinction in Bavaria. No word on the recipients of the first Kammerpodcaster und Kammerpodcasterin titles in Bavaria. <laughs> yet. <laughs> on the disabled list, relief pitchers, cast changes, and injuries. Oh my. Clay Hilly stepped in as a last-minute replacement for Stephen Gould in Siegfried in Bayreuth's Götterdämmerung. And in the same ring cycle, Michael Kupfer Radecki stepped in mid-show as Votan for Tomasz Konechny, who was injured on stage during Die Valkura, but sang through Act Two. Konechny was able to return to the stage the following night as the Wanderer in Siegfried. <laughs> Anita Ratchavelli-Shvili has cancelled her participation in the role of M. Neris at the Salzburg Festival and will be replaced by Eve Maud Hugo. And in the same house, different show, a female extra was seriously injured when she fell off the top stage level during a rehearsal of The Magic Flute. In an official statement from the festival, quote, There has been an accident at work that has also been reported and is regrettable. Normally, a serious accident where negligence is suspected is investigated. That's not the case. It was an unfortunate accident. Exit stage right. Acclaimed Brazilian soprano Laura de Souza has died of cancer at the age of 64. One of the most renowned dramatic sopranos Brazil has ever produced, de Souza excelled in Verdi and Puccini heroines, several Wagnerian roles, and was acclaimed for her portrayal of the title role in Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos. And on this day, August 8th, an incredibly slow news day, in, 17... <laughs> in 1754, we have the birth of singer Luigi Marchese. Oh, in household 1850s... name. Yes, totally. In 1857, we have the birth of French composer Cécile Chaminade, who was the first female composer awarded with the French mm. Legion of Honor. 1905 is the birth of French composer André Jolivet. I just wanted to take a moment to say that slowly, it's fun. 1921 is the birth of American composer Roger Nixon. 1964 brought us the formation of the Dutch Opera Foundation, which would go on to become the Dutch National Opera. And one for the home team. In 2004 on this day, Dave Matthews Band emptied their tour bus's septic tank onto a tour boat in the Chicago River. And that is your two-minute drill. That was mezzo-soprano Amanda Lynn Bottoms and pianist Myra Huang performing Cécile Chaminade's Ma Première Lettre. Uh, Chaminade, impeccable credentials, and she was a big hit with the pub, with the music going public in the early 20th century, um, but has since fallen into obscurity, and I think it's beyond time that we bring her music oh, back absolutely. into vogue. I remember the uh, the Dave Matthews band thing happening. <laughs> Drink? <laughs> <laughs> was it? Were you the one who unloaded the septic tank? No, it wasn't. No, no, no. I've never been on a, a tour bus, but yes, I was in Chicago when that happened. Perhaps the only one. No, I bet. No, Oliver was here. Oliver was here. I was well. here. I was here as well. That oh, was. Uh, oh. Yeah, it was. It was wild. And the crazy thing was, I was supposed to be on the river that day. I was supposed <gasps> to be on the river. Could have been you. Thank God you weren't. I, yes, and and listeners, you're going to need to go back and do a little goog on this. You know what? No, you don't. I'll just tell you. So Dave Matthews Band, nicest guy in rock of all things. You know, he's he all of a sudden is That's like say, anyway. vilified, vilified because the tour bus <laughs> decided to empty their septic tank. I mean, and honestly, tour buses, as gross as this is, do this sometimes. So they found a spot on the Chicago River and, and started to do the thing and do the business. But Chicago in the summer is known for a lot of boat tourism, and it just so happens happened that there was a tour boat that was coming by right at the right time there are no ceilings on these no roofs friends so those those septic contents went right onto some unsuspecting iowa tourists oh oh god and it could have been ashley now we know 
could be kidding me. <laughs> Ashley, no, so my, my good my good call for the episode is going to be that Ashley was not on the uh, the yeah the and all of that tour all, that day. You know, everything from that tour bus got swept down the river to St. Louis. There you go. <laughs> <So> <laughs> just what they deserve. Well, no, it's not. St. Louis is is doing marvelously well right now. They oh, got absolutely. the New Works Collective firing on all cylinders. Yeah, Weston. Uh, <laughs> Weston called it the inaugural. I, I think there's been some iterations of this idea in previous versions not exactly the, oh, the collection but did not yeah. um fire shut up in my bones and champion come out of the same program I, I think it was structured differently yeah it might have been structured differently uh, the their press definitely says inaugural but i i don't know what form um that took i i will say opera theater st louis this is not the first time they've done something like this i think one of the strengths of otsl is how they really try to connect with their local audience um, mm-hmm. historically. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, to the like like the the bare basics, you know, performing a lot of American operas, a lot of even when everything, they're doing everything is in English, everything's in English, you know, that really trying to make sure that as many people can appreciate it as possible. Uh, and I, I was actually just recently in um, St. Louis for a <laughs> wedding a, a few weeks ago. And um, I I was, you know, really thinking about, you know, the city and, uh, you know, the, the political situation down there is not often kind in terms of uh, supporting its residents uh, or the arts in general. And I think that what Opera Theatre St. Louis is doing uh, is a great model for other companies in similar situations to try to, like, bridge that gap. These are all St. Louis um, uh, natives uh, who are uh, – well, I'm, I'm not sure if all of them are natives, but they're all tri- they're all part of the community. And you see a lot of people of color, a lot of people of uh, different sexualities, I believe. Uh, Ashley, you know a little bit about um, – uh, Trayvon Griffith, yeah. So – you know, one of the things about Trayvon is he founded something called Workfest. It's an arts and culture festival in St. Louis that is highlighting, you know, black and queer, LGBT, non-binary community. Uh, so already just in, you know, in bringing somebody like him in, that's a that's a level of representation that is, you know, it's it's big. And so when they talk about sort of changing the power dynamic and sort of who's who's making the decision on what gets programmed by bringing somebody in like Trayvon who's already known for this really fantastic you know open festival that happens in St. Louis they're already really just sort of setting they're setting the tone for that and you know in looking at sort of the the names of the people who are heading up these teams you know you see a lot of you know you see a lot of queer people you see people of color you see queer people of color you see women so again mm-hmm. these are just these are steps in in the right direction for you know other other companies to model really the only thing wrong with st louis is that the st louis cardinals uh, everything else that, that OTSL is doing is right. It's strange, of course, because in Chicago, like, you know, you'll be a, a, a Cubs or a Sox fan, but from central Illinois down to the border, Full the cards. southern states, they yeah, are all 100%. Cards fans. It's because downstate hates Chicago, George. Absolutely. That's oh, right. that is true. Okay, so there's no accidents <laughs> happening in, in St. Louis, which is good. And then now there's accidents happening in Germany as well. So we have these these problems at, the, uh, at Bayreuth, people getting injured. Uh, the- I'm starting to think that that someone has cursed Bayreuth. There have been so many cast changes and now injuries. Wow, who would possibly have a good reason to do that? <laughs> There's always drama <laughs> at, at Bayreuth. That production of um, The Ring Cycle, by the way, directed by Valentin Schwartz, who's 33 yes. years old. There was an article on Christ. him in the New York Times, which is... I, Man, I don't know if I'll ever direct the ring when I'm like twice that age. Was he the fifth understudy to go in as the director <laughs> you, you without having any time to prepare? And then, and then of course, the uh, the per- right. Yes, uh, there was the injury of the uh, of the extra uh, who fell off the top stage level. Um, I hope they're uh, they're doing okay. Um, I mean, I, we so didn't the, see any the article was the article it, but... was at pains to to say that it wasn't foul play, and you know these things happen. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say this: Lydia Steyer, uh, who was the director of that production, who I know, is so conscientious, and like mm-hmm. safety yeah. would absolutely come first with her. So it, you know, I'm not going to conjecture as to what the scenic design was like, how this person got hurt. Uh, it happens, and everybody is mortified when it happens. Administrations, no, directors, nightmare. 
everybody yeah. feels responsible in their own way. And a lot of finger pointing can happen in the uh, days and weeks afterwards. Yeah, yeah, but doesn't absolutely. It seem, doesn't it seem that we've reported on this with more frequency in the last like six to eight months? Yes, I know that opera was kind of not doing stuff for a while, but it feels like <laughs> th- these aren't the first articles where we've talked about somebody getting injured on a set or in rehearsal. So I'm I'm just a little Well, I like, think people yikes. are taking their eye off the ball a little bit, you know, and when we think about, you know, health and safety, we're, we're really thinking about COVID protocols right now. And, right. That's and perhaps people are forgetting... You know, with the fragility of the human the body. Human condition. And it's not that yeah. people are taking more chances. It's just that, like, our focus is in other other areas. And, and this is what is now reminding us that we have, you know, safety must absolutely come first. Yeah. I mean, theater is uh, – theater of any kind, not just opera – is a high risk thing. I, I know, I, I, as an audience member, member, uh, it it can be really, you know, you you might watch a show and like not realize the 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 possibility of an injury happening. But let me tell you, like uh, the first time I was in, I was in a show and had to get up on it, even just a couple of like little blocks, you know, I was like, oh, wait, I could really bust my ankle mm-hmm. right now, you know, yeah. in, in like a no no budget, nothing kind of college production, you know, and, th- and once you add in all these moving parts, it really is dangerous. And I think it's something that uh, a lot of people who are just watching don't necessarily appreciate unless they've actually been on stage. Well, they don't. I mean, per- performers love to take risks. They love to take chances. Yeah. They yeah. love to take falls and say, you know what? No, I'm fine. It's cool. As what happened uh, in the Salzburg as well um, to say, yeah, no, no, we're, we're good. Um, uh, I'll say this is connection. I'm going to sing through act two and all that. Yeah. Instead of saying, right. no, 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 no. We're we're stopping. This is we're, we're we're done here. Despite all that, doesn't it not feel like we're kind of in the dog days of opera summer? We absolutely are in the dog days of opera summer and of opera birthdays. It is hot. Summer festivals are ending. Companies that are in the ac- traditional academic year are starting to build back up. There's just there's not a whole lot going on except somebody's sick, so someone else is going to go on for them. Yeah. We had to. I I joked about the slow news week, but mother of pearl, y'all. We had to dig for some stories. Usually, there's a lot more going on. That <laughs> I mean, we can it's talk about and report on. That is a historical trend on August eighth. Apparently. So few important (laughs) anniversaries. People aren't even being born in this time of year. This is all the more reason to get get, uh, Chaminade back in the popular repertoire because we need someone to talk about on August 8th going forward. And I think that's the way to do it. I've actually sung a little bit of Chaminade music. It's really, it's really lovely. She's, I, I think she only did like a handful of operas. What, like two, three? Mm-hmm. That Feel free right. to tell me I'm wrong because I can't totally remember. But I've, I've sung a lot of her art song uh, because yeah. I, I know much kind more of, familiar with her art songs than anything yeah. else. Same. And that's where my performance life usually lives outside of the insane amount of choral singing I've been doing this summer. But that's <laughs> she's. She, She's got a really beautiful style, and and when she was given her her uh, her Chevalier uh, Legion honor, they said the quote was something along the lines of "She is not a female composer; she is a composer who is a woman." Like it, they made a real big thanks on stink yeah. about like Very we're not giving it to her because she's you know she's pretty good for a girl. We're giving it to her because she's actually <laughs> really good. And you know what? That's allyship in the in the nineteenth century. So <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's short of a ribbon at an award show. That's the best <sighs> they could do. Let us wrap this show up, team, and get out of there and enjoy the the Chicago summer. Here we go. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call to wrap things up this week. We won't be taking a week off, by the way, until Labor Day. We will plow ahead through the month of August. We can't be stopped come hell or high water. Matt Cummings. <laughs> uh, so I was prepping for the show today. I saw come across my timeline that um, Australian actress and singer extraordinaire Olivia Newton-John has passed away mm. um, after mm. a long battle with breast cancer. And the Grease movie was one of my earliest experiences with the musical theater art form. And I holds a special place in my heart. And I'm, you know, thinking of her family and loved ones and praying for the best. Weston Williams. 
Um, my good call. Oh gosh, it's more of a bad call, really. As you might all be aware, Oliver's uh, dulcet tones are not present on this podcast today, and that's because he is being wined and dined over in Santa Fe, having the time of his life watching Carmen, Tristan, and Isolde interviewing some great uh, performers that we're going to be featuring pretty soon. Uh, uh, and once again, second year in a row of Oliver being wined and dined. Did not invite me. Bad call, Santa Fe. Bad they call. can't afford the extra leg room. <laughs> That's fair. That's I, I rescind my bad call. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. Listen, this is my first time back in a long time. I had like 17 different good calls that I was really excited to share with all of you and you listeners at home. But 90 minutes before we started, uh, it was reported that the FBI is raiding the Mar-a-Lago resort, and it is all I can do to not be mainlining any sort of news source while we're in the middle of recording. I am vibrating <laughs> with anxiety, so let this recording be the moment in time when we know that they were there, but we don't know what they were there for. And if my head explodes next week, you'll know why. Chicago, of course, home to some fantastic improv comedy, the Second City, Improv Olympic, and the Annoyance Theater. Yours truly currently doing a week-long summer intensive at the Annoyance Theater in improv comedy. So next time you see me, you just, you know, give me a non-geographic location and I'll give you a two-minute scene. Yes, and. Yes, and. (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, and Norm is at normwaddell.com. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, on Stitcher Radio and Spotify. You click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Again, send us a voice memo. Get your voice heard. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while not getting hurt in an opera house. We're back with an all-new show next week when we check in with Oliver after his Santa Fe pilgrimage. Pussy get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more leg room. Mm. (laughs) Join us.